interesting that Michelle would use uh, a verse that I was going to use uh, to start out the sermon with, the Deuteronomy 31 passage, and we didn't, we didn't coordinate that, so this is not a coordinated effort to really kind of push this upon you. Uh, that was just the Holy Spirit at work, because she said something that's really important that, that I want to make very clear, because sometimes we can hear certain parts of a sermon and only take part of it, and, and it can be confusing to us. And so um, the, the question did arise, well, wait a minute, if, if God removes his presence from us, how does that square with his promise to never leave or forsake us, Right? So, so remember this uh, from, from the last sermon, and we, it really begins in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve um, eat of the fruit and they fall, what does God do with them? He casts them east of Eden out of his, his immediate presence and the blessing of the garden. Now, why does he do that? Was it purely punitive? The answer is no, because what happens if they eat of the, of the tree of, of everlasting life? Their fate is sealed. So to protect them, he had to remove them from him. But remember, they carried with them a promise. Genesis 3.15. That from the woman, from the seed of the woman would come the one who would at long last crush the head of the serpent, therefore setting all of God's people free. Redemptively, So we have that promise, and then we see throughout history uh, moments where God's presence departs from his people. We see it in the Psalms. The psalmists uh, frequently cry out about this reality. Uh, Isaiah speaks of it in terms of blindness and deafness, and we definitely see it in that really interesting passage that we, that we would love to see made into a major motion picture film, which is the, the chariot with the wheels with all the eyeballs on it that can turn in any direction, right? So what is that chariot for? the presence of the Lord departing from the temple. And so, and remember that his departing is always purposeful, right? When he removes his blessing, he removes his presence, it is always for what purpose? To call his people back to him, which is what we're seeing in Hosea, right? So this is never just arbitrary. So for some of you who are just afraid that one day you're gonna wake up and God's presence will just be, it's just gone like the weather, that, that's not how it works. That's, you need not fear that at all. Now, will Satan try to tempt you with that idea? Absolutely. He'll try to cripple you. He tries to, remember what he does. He tries to isolate. His goal is to get you out from the presence of the Lord and the presence of God's people, which is representative of the presence of the Lord, and, and get you off to yourself so he can destroy you. I have said this before. Marilyn Manson is actually bad for his business. He doesn't want all that overt 666, carve a, a, you know, the star of Satan on your forehead and all that kind of nonsense. What he wants is you, good church-going folk who slowly but surely over time have your faith eroded and eviscerated such that you are walking dead and you are separated. He is not interested in you glorifying him. What he is interested in is you not glorifying God. That's a different project, right? And so anytime that we in any way, shape, or form feel in any way, shape, or form that God's presence has departed from us, what should we do always, categorically, regardless of the why? Return to the Lord, right? And, and do that in community. Let other people know, hey, I'm struggling. I need help. But what do we not like to do? Share what's really going on. Because we're afraid somebody's going to judge us as if 
we have not already been judged righteous in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. And so, what we are talking about here, especially this passage from Exodus 31, now, you got to remember what they're about to do. They're about to enter into the promised land after Moses dies. And so, what God is saying is, as you faithfully continue to follow me in the path I have for you, I will not leave you nor forsake you. But should you, and he says this further on, Exodus 32, should you veer from that path, should you choose to go your own way and become unfaithful, I will depart from you, but for the purpose of bringing you back to the path that you should have been on in the first place. Now, for those of you who may say, well, that's, that's all that Old Testament God stuff. Uh, Jesus actually says, if you forsake me before others, I will forsake you before my Father. And remember what he experienced on the cross, that cry of what we call dereliction, or that cry of great anguish. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Luther speaks of the hiddenness of God at times where he turns his face away. We've all probably experienced it in some measure for a variety of reasons, but remember the solution is always the same. Return to the Lord your God. He never does it arbitrarily, so he is not capricious. So you need not fear that God will ever just arbitrarily decide, I don't know, I just think, I think Clay could use a little shaking up. I think he's, I think he's gotten a little soft, so I'm going to remove my presence Watch him suffer. We'll crack up, we'll eat some popcorn in heaven and watch him suffer. And then we'll, you know, we'll, we'll straighten it back out because i got to be good in the end. No, it's never arbitrary. And remember, it is never between the now and the not yet. It is never purely punitive, meaning that it is, it is a zero-sum game. Now, in the end, at the last day, which is why that last day is tarrying and coming in the best sense of that word, there will be a sense in which you will either meet God as father or as judge. And so, notice how gracious he is. And remember in Hosea, right? He's not reading the newspaper. He's not saying, this has happened and now I'm interpreting it for you. What's he doing as prophet? He's warning them because God is gracious. He's saying, I don't want for my presence to depart from you, but if you continue to depart from me, I have no choice but to wound you lest you think that grace is cheap and that my presence is something that you can take for granted. Now, is taking the presence of the Lord for granted something we might struggle with in American evangelical culture? You better believe it is. And we would do well to be warned. In fact, if you don't like warnings, well, I'm not encouraging you to do this, but it might help if you just rip the book of Hebrews out of your Bible. Because the book of Hebrews says very clearly that if you begin to tack off course, just like sailing, a little bit off course leaves you a lot off course as you continue to go. So it's important that we continue to assess. And as Paul encourages us in another place, I'm not saying Paul's the author of Hebrews, let's say just calm down there. Uh, but, but he says in another place, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We don't like to do that. We like to just kind of leave it. It's set. It's done. Let's just leave it. And I can focus on other things, right? Like getting ready for college football. 
or finishing up this NBA Finals, or getting ready for pro football, whatever it may be that we're getting ready for. You, you need to be getting ready for school, because I know it just ended, but it's about to just start, right? And so, and so we have lots of other things that crowd in on us, but it, we would do well to continue to, uh, to long for and push toward the presence of the Lord and to, and to not be okay when we don't feel it, and and to include other people in that journey with us. To try to do that in isolation is destructive. Trust me, I know. I did it. Why do you think it took seven or eight years for me to finally get that I might be a Christian? Because I didn't want anybody else to know. Because I was teaching things. Because I had an identity that I thought would be put at risk. So I thought, and arrogantly, I thought, I can, I'll get there. I can fix this. I can read enough. I can study enough. I can, I can do enough. I can cover it up. I can, I can, and I couldn't. And I didn't. And it dang near destroyed me. And I want to warn you. I want to warn you, don't do the same. Please, if you are struggling, you've got to talk to us. Do not struggle in silence. Talk to somebody you trust. But do not let yourself suffer in silence. And so it is critical that we understand that God does keep his promise that he will not leave nor forsake us in the ultimate sense. So what we saw in Hosea 5 is he said, you're going to come seeking me. But remember what the condition was in which they sought him. What was the nature of their heart? They took it for granted. They were like, well, we got some lambs. God has to, you know, we just kill a few of these, and God has to do what we want him to do. Really? Is that how God works? Is he, is he a cosmic candy machine? Is he, is he just a syllogism that has to, f- to work the same way the, every single time based on what we will? Oh, no. Remember what he said to him. He said, you will seek me, and I will not be found. I have departed from you. But remember, the Bible doesn't end there. He goes on to say, I'm going to, like a lion, I'm going to tear you apart. And then I will return to my seat and wait and see what you will do. So this is the companion piece to that. And remember how each time we've read Hosea 14 to remind us of where we're going, right? I know a lot of people kind of think that every sermon ought to kind of be its own thing. The Bible doesn't work that way. It's a story, one long story from Genesis to Revelation. So uh, it is an unfolding story. So not every sermon is going to die the death of a thousand qualifications and meet every need, which is why we got to be in conversation, which is helpful, right? My door is open. I don't want to hear anymore that, ah, man, you're just busy with really needy people and you, you can't help. No. That is not, that's actually not true. I'm the least busy I've ever been in my life. Well, except for this week when I'm moving. But, but after that, right? After Wednesday, and even before Wednesday. Uh, but, but don't not get your questions answered. Don't not wrestle with these things. And I'm not the only one you have to come to either, by the way. We have plenty of folks who can serve you and love you in this way. But please make sure that you're continuing to cultivate. And if you're not asking questions, I'm not sure you're paying attention. 
Because so much of this stuff is so paradoxical, isn't it? And it does bring up questions. What a great question. If Deuteronomy 31 is true, how can what you're saying be true? Well, not just me saying it, but Hosea 5, right? Great question. Now, what we saw in Hosea 5 was God pushing the people of God. Remember what they were doing. They were uh, forsaking the presence of the Lord, taking it for granted. They were trusting in, and this is, we see this, and we're going to see this even more in the next, as chapter 6 finishes and 7, they were trusting in a political alliance that someone human could heal what the Lord had done to them, right? Now, how many of you have that much faith in any politician ever? But they did. They turned to the king of Assyria and said, he will heal us. It's insanity. It was not going to happen. In fact, what was he going to do? Enslave them. Make them his image bearers. Which is a temporary thing, by the way. And so they had some things really twisted. And so God, in great severe mercy, wounds them or is threatening to wound them. It hadn't happened yet. Remember, it's not the newspaper. He's threatening to wound them so that they will return to him. Now, we can say, I don't like that. I don't like that. But, and that's fine that you don't like it, but you should like even less being cut off from the Lord your God. You should like even less not having his presence and his blessing upon you and your life. There's so much, so much that we take for granted, right? And so this, this is an opportunity for us to see how the Lord works, and it's not just an Old Testament principle, right? This is actually in the New Testament as well. But so here's my question for you. How do you respond when God disciplines you, right? I mean, uh, how many of you, just quick show of hands, have, can say, I have, I have felt the discipline of God? Okay, we all have for, for any variety of reasons. And how did you respond, right? Do you remember? It'd be worth you kind of thinking about how did you respond? And this is just another way of asking the question, which way do you run when you sin? Because what is God's discipline intended to do? Drive you away? Send you further into darkness? Encourage you and turn you over to where you can't ever come back? Or is God's discipline intended to be that of a loving father who must be just as much as he is gracious? In fact, his justice is an outworking of his grace. We don't always make that connection. His justice is restorative. His justice is not merely punitive. And so this is the question that we have to wrestle with because is it likely that you might get disciplined again at some point in this life? Well, yeah, unless the rapture happens as it does at the end of every service when you all just disappear. But you come back, so something's not working out on that whole thing. Now listen to what Michael Williams says. And the book is a book on biblical theology called Far as the Curse is Found, The Covenant Story of Redemption. All of our leaders have read this book. If you, if you want a book on biblical theology, I, I think it's an incredibly readable, beautiful book. It would help you really understand a lot of how we understand biblical theology here at Christ Community Church. But listen to what he says. He says, man's sin necessitates covenant wrath. It's really important because if God basically is the kind of father that some of, some of you may have had, I didn't have this kind of father, but I've, I've seen these parents where, where they say, now, now listen, if you, if you do that again, if you do that, 
I promise you, I swear to you. And they just keep going and going. And they never actually act on. And what do you notice about those children oftentimes? Their behavior is horrible. Um, and and it, doesn't, it just doesn't work out. It is, it's just empty threats. In fact, it is rash vows that are not to be taken, rash vows, that is. And so, so he says, man's sin necessitates covenant wrath, but God, in his abounding mercy, declares that he and not man will have the last word, that grace rather than wrath will prevail. Now, that's really important, and that's not to be cheapened. That doesn't mean we can get away with murder. In fact, that should lead us to want to worship. That should lead us to love that God who keeps his covenant promises, and that even his discipline and his justice is for our greater good. And so, as we look at these three verses this morning, I want us to know that we are called to respond in repentance to God's wounding and departure and press on to know him so that he will heal and revive us to flourishing in newness of life. Let me say that again because this is, this is really important. And I don't want to presume that just because you've been a Christian for a certain amount of time that you understand anything about repentance or anything about God's grace or anything about these kind of things. We are called to respond in repentance to God's wounding and departure and press on to know him so that he will heal and revive us to flourishing and newness of life. Now, show of hands, how many of you could care less about flourishing and newness of life? I don't see any hands at current. Did you raise your hand, Reese? Good job. Good job. You did good. All right, so, uh, so, so that's what he's calling us to. So he's wounded, and now let's hear what the prophet Hosea says to the people. Verses one and two. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Now, Listen, what he says, so, so there is an intentionality that is necessary on our part. When we have been wounded, when we have felt the uh, departure of the presence of the Lord for whatever reason, we need to turn, return to the Lord. Repentance means not just saying you're sorry, but actually turning from that which you have done, which is, which is covenant breaking or unfaithful or brokenness, and returning to the Lord right? Moving away from the thing that is separating you from him and moving toward him. And you only can do that because he has made the way. So let's not get this twisted. It is not something that, that, is in, that you come up with. Look at what all God has had to do to get them to Hosea 6, right? Don't forget that. Don't forget the, the lived prophecy. Look at what Hosea has gone through to show them that, that God loves them. He had to, I mean, it has affected his life deeply, right? This isn't something casual. So, so he is saying, after you've seen all this, and after you've experienced this, this tearing, this striking down, let us, in response, return to the Lord, right? And what a beautiful thing that the way is open. This is why we read Romans 5 this morning. Right? So, so part of it is, is that we are able, because of what Christ has done, 
to stand in grace before the Lord our God at peace. Now, uh, Tuesday morning group, we talked about the, this, this idea of peace with God. I don't think we appreciate near enough. We take that way for granted. We don't take peace with God to be all that great a deal. Right? We just don't. We're super casual about it. We, it's not something that really, really moves us a lot of times. And that's not true of every one of you, but for a lot of us, if we're honest, it's just not even something we really think about a whole lot. It's something we just take for granted, right? But that we are at peace with God, the creator of the universe, the one who holds all things in his hand, who created all things, to be at peace with him is a great gift. To be able to call him Abba, Father, to be an heir to all of the great gifts that he has given us and all of those promises. Why would you not return to that one? But because we have such a, sometimes such a low view of being at peace with God because we don't really recognize that we were separated from him in the first place. Again, we take things for granted, which is why it is necessary sometimes for him to tear us, for him to strike us down, for him to test us so that we can experience in greater fullness his love. Listen to what it says. Let us return to the Lord, for he has torn. Why? That he may heal us. Now, any of you who have any kind of medicinal background and know anything about science, this is not a foreign concept, right? Are there times that you have to remove the thing that could kill you? And it may even be your own thing. Like poor Zach Wagner had his appendix turn on him, right? And, and act, like, act like a fool and act like he didn't want to live in him no more. So they had to take it out to protect him. But it was, think about it. it was, Zach could have said, no, this is my appendix. I came into the world with it and I'm going out with it. Maybe ruptured all over my insides, but I'm keeping my appendix. No, it had to be removed to save him. He had to be wounded as Kristen referred to him, he was a bad elf when he woke up. I don't know what that means exactly, but you'll have to see her about that. But we know this to be true. Sometimes things have to be removed. We even understand this in terms of relationships, don't we? There are times we have to be separated from one another. There are times that we have to, we have to cast out in order to heal. Susan and I have gone through this. We had to kick our daughter out at one point. And it was the best thing we ever did. The hardest thing we've ever done. And now we have a relationship with her today. She in fact called me this morning and said she was praying for me. What? And didn't ask for money after that, by the way. It was really endearing to me, her father. It wasn't a setup. She said, I'm praying for you as you preach this morning, Daddy. Now, that doesn't solve everything. But it is good. It is better than it could have been. And in fact, she gets why we did what we did. And it was horrible. Y'all don't think I'm just mean. I actually, I am, Susan can tell you, I'm actually incredibly gentle. I have to put up all this front to try to protect myself from being overly generous. Because I'll give it all away. I'd let everybody live with us. I'd just, it'd be fine. But you can't do that. That's actually not loving anyone. And so what God has done is something that we actually understand to be true. Things must be pruned at times in order to save the whole plant. And so he has torn so that he may heal. He has struck down and he will bind us up. And notice the language of verse two. What do you hear in this? After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up. 
does that sound like to you? Ought to sound like resurrection. Resurrection to what? To start, is it, is it karmatic resurrection? All right, let's start over. See what you guys have learned. Going to try it again from the top, everybody. Let's just start over. You're coming back as a roach because you just didn't get it so much the first time. I'm going to make you low. No, this is resurrection unto newness of life. Why? Because of the finished work of Christ. Because Christ was torn so that we would be healed. Christ was struck down so that we would be bound up. It was by his stripes that we are healed. Amen? And so this, this language of resurrection is, and the purpose of God's departure from us at any time is to call us to more abundant life, to newness of life, to resurrectedness, to, to walk in that newness of life, to be different and changed. Grace finds us as we are, but doesn't leave us as we are. It changes us, Right? It calls us to newness of life, to be able to love God more and to love our neighbor more. And so this is the promise. So while we, if the Bible had ended at the end of chapter five, I can fully understand why we would be extremely upset and confused, but it didn't end there. It transitioned into six, calls us to repentance to the one who will heal us and call us to more abundant life. And there's none of us who doesn't long for that. But what we disagree on is how to get it, right? Some of us think that more abundant life is found in more abundant stuff. Now, for those of you who have a lot of stuff and we are moving and discover we have more stuff than we realized, still not packed, uh, I just want to set fire to it and walk away. Maybe just kind of start over at the thrift store. But you have all kind of stuff. Has it really translated into the abundant life? If we're honest, no. Stuff doesn't do that because there's always something new and there's always something breaking. There's always something not working like it's supposed to. There's always something better coming along. And so we are never satisfied with stuff. It doesn't satisfy us in the least. Does money make us happy? And you must say, well, not entirely, but it doesn't hurt. And you're right. But it ought to be used as the tool for which it ought to be used, which is to cultivate the abundant life, right? Not cultivate your abundance, but more abundant life for all. This is why we talk about wanting to be a generous church and participating in this together. And so, so here, this call to repentance is not for you to come hangdog as if you've been called to the principal's office because you're in trouble. No, it's for you to come and be healed, and Christ definitively has made the way for us to do that. that. That Hebrews passage looms so large for us that we would come boldly before the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace that we need in a time of trouble. Would we be a people that do that so quickly? And when we hear that someone else is struggling, what should we also do? Start the gossip prayer chain? Hey, I got a prayer request. This is, it. This is not gossip. It's not that's usually code for it is, right? Why don't you grab that person who is suffering, who has sinned, who has fallen away and go boldly before the throne of grace? Now, you're not their mediator, right? You're not, but you can serve in a priestly way. You can serve them in a beautiful way by instead of acting like it's, you, you've never heard sin before, it's the most shocking thing you've ever heard, and instead say, I know where to go. I don't know how this is going to play out, but it's the only hope we have. Let's go there first. 
Would that we would be a people, a church that is swift. Because one of the other things we want to be known for is be prayerful. A dependent and humble church that goes swiftly to the throne of Christ. And is reminded often that that is the only hope we have. And so, what he's calling us to is newness of life. Not to further rub in our faces that we're never going to be anything. This is not worm theology. In fact, this is fairly, uh, this, is, this is resurrection theology. Listen to what Charles Simeon says of this passage. He says, when the Israelites were deserted by God, they did not say, let us pray that he will return to us. But let us return unto him, for they were well assured that as the alienation had begun on their part, so it would be terminated as soon as ever they should humble themselves in a becoming manner. Let those then who are under the hiding of God's face inquire what has occasioned his departure from them and let them put away the accursed thing and turn to him with their whole hearts. Let them rest assured that there is balm in Gilead and that if they come to God in the name of Christ, their backsliding shall be healed and their happiness restored. Did you hear that? God doesn't depart from us first. It's we who depart from him. And then he removes his presence so that we don't continue in the thing that's going to kill us. It would be crazy for him to turn a blind eye and say, well, you know, those crazy kids, they just goof off a little bit. No, he takes it extremely seriously that you could be destroyed, that you are perishing. We act as if we are not perishing. We act as if we have an eternity to blow. We would do well to show a little more somberness toward these things and celebration too, by the way. We ought to celebrate the fact that the Lord has granted to us eternal life in the resurrection and more abundant life in the resurrection, not for us to blow, but for us to cultivate and enjoy. Amen? So what moves you to repentance? A good question to answer this Lord's day is when's the last time you actually did repent? And what was going on? How tender is your heart? How teachable are you? Right? I mean, that's one of the greatest barriers to repentance is we don't think we need it. And we don't think that but certain people can call us to repentance. And there's only certain ones who can say anything that's of any value to us. In fact, one of the greatest gifts to me uh, is that the children of this church seem to like me fairly well. So let's not mess that up. And they teach me an awful lot about um, my own heart and what it means to actually to, to, to love others and to, and to be forgiving. Um, some of them are incredibly quick to forgive. And I learned one of the reasons I like being in their presence is that it is, it's unfiltered and, and, it, and it helps me to remember some things that I at times have forgotten. And so we would do well to be, to be quick to repent. We would do well to keep short accounts with one another. We would do well to not let things linger and fester. We would do well to be teachable and humble, all of us. Not something we're necessarily known for in the Reformed community. 
What moves you to repentance and what often results from your repentance? How many of you have ever repented and you were destroyed from the face of the earth? Let me see your hands. Well, you're not here, right? That has not happened to you. Your repentance has not led to your destruction. In fact, if you were to think long and hard about it, your repentance oftentimes led to freedom. You could almost feel it as soon as you admitted it, even though it was one of the hardest things you would ever have to do. It's amazing how freeing it is to unload the things that we carry and would that we would be swift to do that. Swift to do that. Now listen to what verse three says. It says, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out assures the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Again, Christianity was not meant to be effortless. It's not. You are to put some effort into it. Now, what you are not to do is think that your effort makes God love you more or saves you. No, your effort actually cultivates your ability to understand the depth of God's love for you. It's you who need the cultivating, not God. He doesn't need to be moved. It is you who needs to be moved. It's your hardened heart that needs to be tendered and turned into flesh, right? And so here, Hosea is saying, now remember, what was one of their main problems? They did not know the Lord because the priests, all of the systems had failed them, but they had also failed themselves. And so in not knowing the Lord, Hosea is saying, then let us, let us know the Lord. Let us press on to know the Lord. Some of us are way too casual um, about, about our, this, this idea of reading the Bible or growing in discipleship. We just are. And I know there's ditches on every side. I, I know that we can, be, we can get out of faith, but this is where community helps to correct us, right? And helps to remind us and not believe the hype that we create for ourselves. But we are to press on. You are to dig in. And I've said it before, if your study habits are unchanged over a period of years, something is wrong. Your study habits must mature as you are maturing. Now, does that mean you read bigger and bigger and bigger books? No. In fact, as we go and as I have gone, my faith has gotten simpler and simpler. And it's less about the big books and the big words and the, and the philosophical treaties and the worldviews and all of this stuff that don't matter one whit to the mother who's suffering because their child has gone prodigal. She doesn't need me to explain what's going on as far as emotivism is and after virtue. Not a bad thing to study. We're reading it. I love it. But it is not going to help her. She needs balm of Gilead to her broken heart. And so we are to press on to know the Lord. And the reason that we ought to press on to know him is because he's faithful and he is steadfast. How many times have we heard that throughout the Psalms that we've read for the call to worship? Remember the call to worship we read this morning, Psalm 85. Think about what the psalmist is saying. Are you going to be angry with us forever? What does that mean is currently going on? God is angry and he's displaying his anger. But the psalmist recognizes that given his past faithfulness and his steadfast love, that he will not remain angry forever and that they are to return. Notice the language of repentance even in Psalm 85, which is why we also sang, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. I know you were thinking, could we not speed it up a little bit? Should we, shouldn't we come in with some tempo? It was a long night last night. I need something more than this. Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. 
But that's, we're not here to manipulate your emotions. We're not here to do that. What we're here to do is worship the Lord our God and to press on to know him and push past what we think we ought to be doing, recognizing in humility that we don't know one whit about what we ought to be doing, really. And we need to be challenged. And tempo ought not dictate whether or not we think something has happened, by the way. It works, but for all the wrong reasons. So, here, God, who is faithful to restore and renew us and to cultivate us, he is worth pressing on to know. Listen to what Krish Candia says about this in Paradoxology, why Christianity was never meant to be simple. Through this difficult love story, God speaks to us with Hosea's voice. He will be faithful to us, but he asked for faithfulness from us as well. For those of us who live in the last days, we are closer than ever to the time when God's patience will finally be at end. That means he will come as judge. It is now that we should return to God with wholehearted worship. We are called to honor the faithful God with lives of obedience, trusting that despite our unfaithfulness, he is longing to forgive us and welcome us home. Isn't that the great paradox? that he calls for our obedience, but not for salvation. And when we mess up, he grants us, and when we come with repentant hearts, contrite hearts, we're gonna see in the next chapter, he didn't, couldn't care one whit about the sacrifices themselves. What he wants is you. He wants a relationship. Remember, you are not a commodity to God. You are worth the death and resurrection and coming again of his son. You are worth all of that heaven has to offer. Amen? So, what are some ways in which you are pressing on to know the Lord? This is worth you asking, right? And you can kick against this goat if you want to, and you can throw the, you know, I don't need to be in an accountability group. I don't need to do anything. Blah, blah. I get it, all right? We've, done, we've talked about that for years, and we're no better off from that conversation, by the way. But where are we pressing to know the Lord? What are we investing in so that we would know this God who calls us to receive all that heaven has to offer to us as heirs? Are you, are you engaging that? Are you leveraging that? Are you cultivating that which will translate into the new heavens and the new earth? And how has he been faithful to restore and renew you? That is, take time today to recount that as family. Your kid, for those of you who have kids, your kids need to hear the stories. Even though it, it, it's gonna kind of be embarrassing, you think they're gonna leverage it and, against you, they don't need anything to leverage against you. They have the fall that courses through their veins. So share with them ways in which, so they can see, so they can hear the story. Now, obviously you have to make it age appropriate. Do all that good stuff, right? But don't let them never hear that you you were called to repentance, that God disciplined you, and that God was faithful to restore you. Because if you don't, what's going to happen when they experience it and they don't know what's going to happen? And we as a church body ought to love each other well. We have college students. We have those who are single. We ought to love each other well by welcoming into our lives so that we can share these stories with each other. We don't need to be embarrassed there is nothing for you to be embarrassed about about what you've done. 
particularly if it has been cast as far as the east is from the west and finished in Christ. You don't have to worry about what anybody thinks about you because of what God already thinks about you in Christ. And so, how has God been faithful to restore and renew you? You need to be able to tell that story. And it's good for us to think about, and there may be some ways in which he's done it in which you've just overlooked or taken for granted. Doesn't always have to be this massive story. Sometimes he's been faithful to restore and renew you because he protected you from doing all the dumb stuff that I've done and other people as well. So what do we learn from Hosea 6, 1 through 3? What is, what is it teaching us? First, that we are to respond to God's wounding and departure so that he will heal and revive us. We are to repent. But if we're honest, most of us, we just keep running. The moment someone says, in fact, you know this, if I call you and I say, hey, we need to get together. And in that tone, not, hey, hey we need to get together and hang out and be friends. But I'm like, hey, we need to get together. What most of you are like, oh, like 2020 maybe, like August? You good then? Will it have gone away by then? Like we, we get so upset, we're so worried that you're being called to the principal's office. Who cares? I mean, maybe there's something needs to be dealt with. Come in humble, right? And, and deal with it. And if you find out I'm a horrible tyrant, go find another church. Like get this worked out quick. Don't put it off till 2020. Let's know this now. So we don't need to be, we don't need to run. When the Lord wounds us and when we are called to account, it is all, and we as leaders, we are striving to be in, in line with the Lord. If ever we have to call you on something, it is to restore you, not to tell you to get out of here. It's not the intent. Now there may come a time where you have to go as what might be best for both parties. But that is not the front door. That is not what we want to do. And even if you have to go, that too is for your good, restoration, and ours. So it is never purely punitive. And may we as elders always remember that. And may you as well. Second, we should press on to know the God who is faithful to bring flourishing and newness of life. All that language about spring rains, that's his provision. That's, you know, you think about how that, to the waste places, it just brings newness of life. There was a story not long ago where um, all these wildflowers blossomed. I believe it was somewhere around Death Valley and people just came from all over because they hadn't seen wildflowers in that area in 20 years. It was crazy how the beauty drew them. We ought to have that same experience on a regular basis. We get to in God who is faithful to do that as we are constantly repenting and returning to him when prodded, when wounded. So don't hear, so please hear me. God does not remove his presence arbitrarily. He does not remove his presence casually. He does not remove his presence without having forewarned you and notice with Israel, how many years did he warn them? 200. By the time this thing ends, 200 years. Now, don't go thinking you get 200 years to be warned because you don't live that long. But for Israel, the nation, he was incredibly gracious. And he's been really gracious to some of you too. I know he was with me. He warned me for a long time. I just didn't want to hear it. And so... Know that if he does remove his presence, it is not to harm you, it is to restore you and make you better than you could be otherwise. Like newness of resurrection, abundant life, right? 
So know that the Lord, our God, is good and he loves you and he wants to be in relationship with you, not treat you as a commodity or be a commodity to you, some rabbit's foot that you call on when you think you need it, but instead someone you relate to regularly. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you that you call us back to you. Thank you that you don't forsake us without being gracious to us and mourning us and loving us and wounding us. Thank you that the way is open for us to return to you in and through Christ alone. And thank you that it is for our growth and our maturation that you wound us or you strike us down. Thank you that you are good to to us when we seek to know you. You will be known. You don't hide from us. This is not a shell game. This is not anything silly like that. When we knock, you open. When we truly seek, we will find. Christ promised us that. And God, thank you that you are faithful and you are worthy of our worship. And thank you, Lord, that we have a God that though there are times that you remove yourself and sit down, there's a way to find you. There's a way to return to you. God, help us not to to believe the devil's lie that your removal of your presence is in any way arbitrary or purely punitive. Instead, it is a call to relationship. May we see it for the fatherly discipline that it is. If there be anyone in here this morning, Lord, who is wrestling with feeling like your presence has departed from them, give them the courage to be prayed for. Give them the courage in the power of the Holy Spirit to return to you and confess their sin and to deal with what it is that is separating them from you and has caused them to to veer off course being unfaithful. God, thank you that you've allowed us to gather this morning and that you have given us so many means of grace for us to, to be restored to you and to enjoy you. In Christ's name, amen.